to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie. Welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. I'm so excited that you're here and tuning in today. I appreciate your guys' love so much. Every time you download, you comment, you share these episodes, uh, you're helping people spread all these amazing, important messages that we are talking about. And I'm super pumped to introduce you to today's Fit and Fabulous podcast guest, Dr. Candice Kickler. You guys, she's a total badass mom, surgeon, doctor. I just love her. I follow her on social media. So she is a board certified general surgeon. She's fellowship trained in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery. She is the medical director of bariatric surgery at JFK Medical Center in Atlantis, Florida. She's also an associate professor in surgery at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Kickler also runs North Palm Beach Aesthetics. And you can tell she's in style. I need, because <laughs> <laughs> yes. I need you to come style me. <laughs> well, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background, how you, know, how you got into medicine and why bariatrics. So uh, let's start with the, the basics. I grew up on a farm, like in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. Um, I never really thought that I would be a doctor, much less a surgeon, um, because my family, like I was one of the first people to go to college. Um, but my mom did work for a doctor in his office and, you know, I was a bright student. So he encouraged me to pursue medicine, like throughout my life. Um, I really loved, you know, science. I loved, um, just everything about like treating patients and taking care of people. So, you know, I went the med school route in med school or before med school, I thought I would for sure just like be a dermatologist or something very like, um, girly. Mm -hmm. um, but I fell in love with surgery and I fell in love with the OR. And so, and throughout my kind of training, you know, when I was in college, I also became very into fitness. So bariatric surgery initially was kind of like the perfect match for me. You know, it was a blending of surgery and life and health and, you know, lifestyle, nutrition, all the things. So that really led me to the career that I'm at at this point. Um, I've kind of veered back towards the girly things and opened up my own med spa where I'm helping people, you know, become their best beautiful self with some Botox fillers and some, you know, other non-surgical things, but I'm making it work. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So my mother, her dream was for me to become a dermatologist and work Monday through Friday, nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was super interested in surgery. I loved being in the operating room. There was some sort of satisfaction for me about completing a surgery and then closing up. And I really honestly thought I was going to go into plastics, you know, kind of like you, I mean, I, yeah. I was, you know, drawn to the aesthetics and things like that, but, um, my husband really wanted to start a family and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't be, for those of you that don't know, you go to medical school for four years, then you do a surgery residency, which is five years. And then if you want to specialize in something like minimally invasive surgery and bariatrics, then you go on to do a fellowship. So if you guys can do the math, by the time you get out, a lot and you're of getting years. an actual paycheck, it's a lot of years. And, um, so I, my mom, all she said was, don't be an obstetrician, whatever you do, don't be an obstetrician. <laughs> She was like, you know, I was loving surgery and, um, and then I did my OBGYN rotation and just fell in love with seeing women only. I loved delivering babies. It was like this small little pocket of 
happy medicine. And I just fell in love with it. And I love, I love my job, but I don't think people realize that how much surgery we do. Yeah. Um, I do I, yeah I, even in our own clinics, a lot of procedures in office procedures and things like that. So I just, I, I love working with my hands and doing that. So tell us what, what is like your daily schedule? Like, obviously you take care of yourself, you're fit. Like, how do you, how do you maintain as a mom of a three-year-old and, and being a surgeon and, and doing the aesthetic stuff too? Yeah. So as you know, it's a lot. It's hard. Um, I find that I work best when I schedule everything. So I'm a big planner person. I used to like have everything on my phone and, you know, try to go through digital calendars and everything, but I have regressed and I am back to paper planners and it really works for me. I write in what I'm doing, when I'm going to do it, and there's no confusion, you know, like I had this podcast in my, ca- in my calendar in my paper calendar. Um, so I schedule everything. Like I schedule my workouts, my, my daily routine is typically, you know, if I have surgery, um, that morning I may do like a quick Peloton workout, like right when I wake up, like five, five thirty, something like that, get ready for the day, wake my son up, give him a kiss, you know, give him to my husband and then I head to surgery. Usually on the days I have surgery, I have a light afternoon. So I don't really schedule too much unless it's like personal stuff, appointments and things like that. Um, and then the days that I have office, I'll have a similar schedule, but maybe wake up a little later um, or have a workout planned at the end of the day. It's really just, you know, it literally varies day to day, but I find that if I keep myself organized and I schedule in the workouts or I schedule in the lunches or the things that I need to do to be a productive mom, wife, you know, doctor, then it happens if I see it on paper. I love it. I love it because we are so good at coming up with excuses, especially yeah. when you're a mom and a doctor, because people always say that to me, They're like, I don't know if you can do it. I guess I I'm coming up with, you know, I said, Oh, listen, I have all the excuses too, all the reasons not to do it. And excuses are subtle, seductive, and believable. Um, and so I love that you get up and your workout is the first thing Yes, because my mentality is pay yourself first. Like how can you go take care of all these patients? If you don't feel and function your absolute best. So I think that's, that's, but paper calendar, that's a, that's a, I know. I never thought I would go back to that. Obviously we all did paper calendars at one point in our life, you know, college or whatever. And I just, I was getting so frustrated because I had like two Google calendars, a work calendar, like this and that. And I was like, screw this. I just need to get it all in one place. And yeah. that way I can see it. I can cross it off when I need to cross it off. You know, like it just, it's amazing. Try it. <laughs> are you a list? Are you a list maker? Like a Check, 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 Sometimes, check. like when I need to get something done, I am, but, um, I don't know. I also like recently I, I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how, like, you shouldn't necessarily make a list just to cross something off. You yeah. should more shift your focus into things that you need to accomplish, mm-hmm. like put those down and really focus on them. Like big picture things, not like, Oh, I did the dishes today. You know, Mm -hmm. not like, oh, I took out the trash, like the really big picture, the goals, the things that are like in your future Mm -hmm. and make that like a smaller, concise, but more list you need to be consistent with. So I'm trying to do stuff like that. Yeah. I think that when you look at highly successful people, they have routines and rituals and they prioritize whatever the most important thing that I accomplished today, putting that early in the day. And that's, that's why my workouts are early in the day because 
things are going to happen. You know, you, uh, you got to get gas. You got to do this. Uh, tragedy happens. Some, you know, you get a phone call about something you get, and you just never know how the day will go. So you just have to prioritize those really important, you know, things that need to get exactly. done. And we work yeah. so hard. We're so tired at the end of the day. Like for mm-hmm. me to get the motivation to do like a really good workout after I've worked all day is like, ain't going to happen. You know, like unless it's one that I'm really looking forward to, it's much easier for me to get it done early in the morning. And I tell people that and patients that all the time, like they're like, Oh, I'm so tired. By the time I get home from work, I'm like, exactly. Just do it in the morning, set your alarm, wear your workout clothes to bed. Like I'll literally put, I'll sleep in my sports bra and my shorts, whatever I'm going to hop on the Peloton or whatever. And just, then you don't really have an excuse. You know, it's like, you're Mm -hmm. already dressed, just get up and do it. And I love the idea that you write it in your calendar because it's like making an appointment with yourself. You would never blow off a meeting with, you know, a, a, a business partner meeting or blow off a meeting with, you know, any other important person. <laughs> like you're more important than any of those people. Exactly. Uh, I love that. Okay. So tell us how you feel your body. Like, do you eat a particular way? You're obviously, you know, healthy and fit. Yeah. I'm really into intermittent fasting. Um, I do that at least five days a week. Like I normally wake up, I'll have some black coffee. Um, I may put some of my inulin powder in it and then, which doesn't really have much. And then I won't eat until like 12 or one. And I finish dinner. I've been trying to finish, um, by dark, which kind of goes along with our circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I have seen a really big shift in like my body composition, the way I feel just by trying to finish by dark. Um, I do that Monday through Friday. And then the foods that I eat, like, you know, I'm human. I don't eat perfect every meal. Like, let's be real. Cause I will have lunch with my staff and things like that. But you know, if my husband and I are cooking or if I'm having something that I choose to eat, then it's going to be more protein based, you know, carnivore ish, like very high in animals. Like I'm not, There was a moment in my life where I thought I was vegan. There was a moment in my life where I thought I was plant-based. And at the end of the day, like the nutrients that we get from animal-based protein, they just serve my body better. And I feel less inflamed. I feel full more quickly. I, I just keep my weight where I want it to be. And so I typically like, we'll have steak and avocado, you know, we'll have chicken or salmon and like some spinach, you know? So really just eating like basic stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just real whole foods. I know that's yeah. one of my, you know, and I think working in obesity medicine, you know, you have, you've probably seen like with nutrition, there's like, you've got Mediterranean and you've got this and you've got that. And people are so confused. And I think no matter yeah. what diet you subscribe to, the diet is really just what you're actually eating. Yeah. The more you can stick to those real nutrient dense whole foods, small yeah. ingredient lists, you're probably going to see the most success. Exactly. Um, the processed foods. Yeah. So what, what causes obesity? Well, as you know, there are probably a million different triggers. There's a genetic component. Um, but I think for society today, it's mostly environmental. It's what we're eating. It's what we're doing. It's what we're consuming. It's literally, you know, in my opinion, it's everything that we interact with. You know, you, you wake up, you scroll on your phone. You're right there. You're just like not even starting the day right with your brain and your mental health. 
you know, you're not being active, you know, and then you have breakfast. Like, do we need breakfast? I don't know. I feel like I don't. So I just have some coffee and go about my day. There's so many people that think, oh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. That term came from the companies that funded the research to get profit, essentially. It was like the cereal companies promoted the study to say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So do we really need it? No. Like if you're not hungry, don't eat. That's, that's my biggest thing. Um, so, you know, I think what we're eating, when we're eating, you know, mostly we're just engulfed with processed foods. That's really the biggest cause. Our hormones are all out of whack. No one's exercising. No one's getting natural sunlight, you know, grounding, like all the basic things that were just normal in your day-to-day activity that we've come away from with technology are the reasons for obesity. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed living the lifestyle that I live. Like if I have to go into the hospital in the middle of the night, seems like 2 AM is like the atomic bomb of circadian rhythm. If I get called, get woken up, even just have to like pick up my phone and answer a phone call 24 to 48 hours after that, my satiety is off. I'm more hungry. I just, yeah, it just completely throws me off. And so of course I try to stick to it as best as I can, but there's certain times that it happens, like you're on call. Okay. So when patients come, when you see patients in clinic, you're seeing patients that are passable candidates for weight loss surgery. Is that, is that a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do see people who are like a little bit under that category, but yeah, majority in my surgical office are there because they're candidates for a surgery. Who is a good candidate for weight loss surgery? So when you look at the, I mean, both, we go by the BMI scale, you know, which is not a perfect indicator of your health or fitness level or anything. Really, we know that at this point, but it's still what the insurance companies use to approve you or deny you for surgery. And it's what all the um, studies that we have were based off of is that BMI body mass index number. So really like you qualify if your BMI is 40. If your BMI is 35 and you've got medical problems like hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, you know, you've got PCOS, other things that are associated with obesity, then you also qualify. And that ends up being somewhere around like 70 to 80 pounds overweight. So from your ideal body weight, add 70, 80 pounds. Those are the people that qualify for surgery. Okay. Okay. Um, Talk to me about the different types of procedures that you perform and how do you decide what's best for each patient? Yeah. So, um, there's three main surgeries that we do today for obesity. There's the lap band, there's the sleeve and there's the bypass by far. The sleeve is the most popular today. And I, I really think it's probably the best operation for today for obesity, because we're only operating on the stomach. Like we're literally just trimming the stomach. I tell patients when it's all healed up, it's as though you were born with a small stomach. It works in a metabolic way, similar to the gastric bypass, which is more invasive because it's changing your appetite hormones. It's changing the way your body's processing the food. It's adjusting the incretins. So as you eat things shift internally and it's easier for you to process foods and to lose the weight. So that's the sleeve, the lap band it's older. It was like super popular. You probably saw, saw billboards for it. 99.99, get your lap band. Okay. But that's a foreign body. And these things can erode, they can slip, they make people vomit all the time. So that one has really fallen out of favor. And then the most traditional, like 
but more invasive, I would say surgery is the gastric bypass. Some people still need it and it is a great operation, but it's rerouting your intestines. You know, like it's trimming the stomach, making new connections with your small intestine. It leads to more malabsorption. So like people with already vitamin deficiencies or have like, or that take critical medications like seizure disorders and things like that. It's not something that I recommend. And it also has more long-term potential issues. While most people don't have issues, period, it does have more potential issues. So, you know, when I see people and a lot of my patients are really young, um, you know, they're in their thirties, forties, they've got a lot of years left to live. I don't want to give them a surgery that they may have to be re-hospitalized for over and over and over. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a sleeve girl typically. And those are the three main procedures that help people to lose a really dramatic amount of weight. It's really effective in the long term, um, and it's worth it. How many things have people typically tried before they end up in your office? Oh my God, like a million. I feel like today surgery is kind of like, it's still taboo. You know, people still think it's the easy way out and, you know, you're weak for doing it. Um, but at the end of the day, you're, you've got to take care of yourself and your health. And would you rather have a surgery, lose weight, get healthy, or just continue to struggle with a diet and then have a heart attack, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but to answer your question, people have tried like a million things. Like they've all done Weight Watchers. They've all done Jenny Craig. They've all done, you know, meals to home, HCG diet, you know, phenamine, you know, 50 times. So it's usually people are like, after they've failed all the other options before they come to see me or before they're referred. Yeah. So of course the big hurdle that we have as surgeons is getting insurance to cover, you know, cases. How much of a hurdle is that for your patients to get these type of surgeries approved? And if it doesn't, like, what is, what does a sleeve gastrectomy cost a patient if they're going to pay cash? Yeah. yeah. So in it's, you know, obviously it varies state to state in Florida, Medicare and Medicaid cover the procedures with pretty much no issue. So like, I really never had anybody like denied or they not paid um, from those two payer systems. Um, the private insurances, it's all depending upon your employer. So like if your employer elects to cover bariatric coverage, then you have it. If they don't, then you don't. And when you don't, it can run you around, in our area, it's anywhere from like 10 to $15,000 for the surgery. So, you know, it's, not something that is affordable to most people, you know, especially when your family members are telling you that you can do it without surgery. And now a quick word from our sponsor, That's It. That's It makes delicious, convenient super snacks from only the purest ingredients. If you're looking for a quick snack for yourself or your kiddos that's all natural, non-GMO, and preservative-free, you have got to try these products. In my house, we love the apple and mango flavor, but really, they're all delicious. These snacks are school safe, and they're completely free from the top 12 allergens. They're so perfect for busy families with simple, recognizable ingredients in portable, convenient formats. You can find That's It products nationwide at your Starbucks, at major retailers such as Target, Walmart, Whole Foods, and Costco. You can even find them online at Amazon, and at that'sitfruit.com. If you head over to that'sitfruit.com backslash Dr. Fit and you use my code Dr. Fit, that's D-R-F-I-T, 
you'll get 20% off your first order. Go ahead and check it out. You know, so most of the people that we work with go through insurance. We have very few cash pay just because it's considered like a luxury and, you know. Right. But you think about what the long-term cost is of continuing to live with obesity, especially when we're talking about the pandemic, which is really exposed, you know, the people most at risk for SARS-CoV-2 obesity, fat, isn't just this like inanimate object. It's an endocrine organ. And so I think it's hard sometimes to think about it that way, but it's like, what's, there's a cost to literally everything. There's a cost of waking up and working out at 5am versus not doing that. I mean, there's, it might not literally be dollar bills, but there's either a financial, emotional, you know, physical cost of every single decision that we make. So this is a big deal for these patients and for their families. What's the long, what's the long-term success of, of this type of surgery? How many of these patients are going to relapse and get back into a same, you know? So, you know, the vast majority do great. Okay. Especially if you are ready for the surgery, you know, like if you have decided like, this is a lifestyle that I want to commit to, because it is a tool, like the surgery is a tool. It's not a miracle pill. It's not a quick fix. Like you have to make you know, personal adjustments with the operation to A, be successful in the short term, but to B, be successful in the long term. Most people do that. Okay. I would say like 85% plus it's the people that were not ready, that were convinced by someone else that they needed to have the surgery that made zero life changes. Those are the people that aren't successful. And unfortunately, just like everything online, if you go online and try to look up the the results, or you may try to look for patient reviews, you may see negative, oh, I gained all my weight, you know, all this, but the people that are successful aren't online writing those things. You know, most of the people do very well, have zero long-term issues, keep the weight off. Everyone gains a little bit of weight throughout their lifetime. You know, like I, in high school and college, I was like 120s, you know, I'm not in my 120s anymore, you know, things like that you will eventually gain a little bit Menopause. Hormones. Yeah. Yeah. hormones, things like that. So some weight gain is normal with life and with time, but they're not going to regain their surgical weight unless they completely fall off the wagon, stop seeing the doctor. Like I recommend they see me literally every year, you know, so, or more frequently if they have issues or start to regain. So if you're following up, if you're doing the things, if you make the life changes, it's extremely successful. Yeah. What is the workup like? Obviously, they're not coming in like I'd like surgery and then it's scheduled on Monday. What is the process like, like to even yeah. get to the point of getting the surgery? It's a really, I mean, it can be a lengthy, arduous process because of the insurance companies. You know, like I wish it were faster because, as you know, and as I just said, these people have tried a million things. Like they're ready for the surgery if they've come to the surgeon's office. Um, but we still have to do a lot of work. So they have to see a therapist and get clearance. You know, they have to be mentally ready and prepared for the things and the changes that their body is going to go through, um, mentally and physically. Um, they have to see a dietitian, and their insurance company may ask them to see a dietitian multiple times. Um, they need clearances from all their doctors, you know, definitely the primary care, but oftentimes we get clearance from cardiology as well as pulmonology, just because it's general anesthesia. It's not really the surgery. That's a risk. It's the anesthesia. That's a risk. Um, and then that's about it. So it's like, you know, therapy, dietitian, getting clearances for surgery that, you know, 
and, you know, basic blood work and stuff like that. It takes a month or two just to even submit you for approval. And then we have to wait for the approval. Then we set up the surgery and all those things. And how long do you follow postoperatively? I see people, you know, I see them every, every, um, I see them a week after surgery, a month, three months, six months, sometimes nine months a year. And then I see them every year, basically forever, you know, like until they decide to stop coming. Um, but it's good to check in once a year, check your, you know, vitamin levels, make sure you're doing the right things, you know, get a refresher, just like, Hey, make sure you're getting this much protein, drinking this much water, taking these vitamins, you know, ask any questions. So, you know, people should follow up basically forever, just like your primary care doctor. Yeah. Um, share with our listeners, I, myself being a surgeon, I think it's such a unique perspective operating and seeing the insides of people's bodies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I operate on patients with, you know, BMIs of all size and from a logistic ergonomical perspective, it's different operating on larger patients. Um, but one thing that has been so eye opening to me is when you see the inside of people's bodies, um, obese people are not only obese on the outside, but we see a large amount of visceral fat deposition. I've been mind blown doing pelvic surgery. Even I've seen fat deposition on the fallopian tubes, ectopic fat on the ovaries. Um, I've seen atherosclerosis come out of a uterine artery doing a hysterectomy. Give us just like a little bit of your insight because you do minimally invasive surgery too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, I mean, you know, we go in, you know, we, I do this minimum, I do all the surgeries laparoscopic. I've had to do very few, the old fashioned open way with a big incision. Um, but it's tough, even knowing all the places that I need to put my incisions and put my cameras and things like that. Like the other day I was doing a sleeve on a patient whose BMI was 60. Um, his weight was about 450 and the bed, which is a bariatric bed could only lift him up so high so that I could see around the spleen. And there was so much visceral fat that it really like obscured my view. You know, I put people on a diet two weeks before the surgery to help shrink that visceral fat and to shrink the liver. Cause there it's, there's been proven to help do that. And it's like when pretty quickly, I mean, yeah, pretty quickly, like fatty yeah. liver, you know, can yeah. be reversed actually super quickly. fast, super fast. So, you know, when, and when people don't do that, I know, you know, like I know because the liver's massive or there's so much visceral fat right in the area where I'm working. It's really, it makes you really reconsider like every meal, <laughs> you know, like, do I need this? Do I, if your waist starts getting a little bigger, like, wait, I'm getting visceral fat. I got to stop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you had mentioned the risk, the really the largest risk with this type of surgery is, you know, anesthetic and anesthesia and when we do pelvic surgery, we tilt patients on the bed into something called Trendelenburg, where, you know, we're tipping you backwards kind of on your head, which makes it a lot harder to ventilate the lungs when you're talking about the weight from the abdominal cavity now, you know, pushing on the diaphragm and pushing on the lungs and making it hard for the anesthetist to, to, uh, to ventilate the patient. There's so many things that patients don't yeah. think about, you know, prior to this type of procedure. Yeah. And, you know, it's like so many people, you know, today we still recommend like if you're overweight to try to lose weight before the surgery and so many people don't take that seriously but if you understood how difficult it was for us and for anesthesia to you know make this 
easy and successful, like I feel like everyone would do it. Everyone would do the diet religiously and, you know, make sure they lost those X number of pounds that their surgeon requested. Yeah. I remember when I was in elementary school, I don't know if it was part of the DARE program or something like that, but they brought in these um, like organs that had been, you know, retrieved from autopsy. They're like, this is what the smoker's lungs look like. You know, like this is, I, I wish sometimes that, you know, that just like people take a mirror and look at their face, like they, that people would be able to see, you know, what their insides really look like. It's really, it's really yeah. eye-opening. You know, it is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about your aesthetics practice. Okay. So this is my, my baby. Um, in North Palm Beach, I have an aesthetic practice. Um, it's myself and a PA who I've worked with for like 10 years, like since I was a resident. Um, she worked in plastics initially before she was in breast, general breast surgery. Um, and that's where we met. Um, and we opened up North Palm Beach Aesthetics. We do Botox, we do fillers. Um, I do a little bit of medical weight loss. I have B12 shots, you know, like different things just to um, make people feel good, look good. You know, it's a place where people can come get a facial, get microneedling. We do some threads, you know, whatever is going to make you feel good, look good. Like it's just a happy place. And I love it. Yeah. I think, you know, aesthetics gets kind of that, you know, uh, it's so like, you know, vain and superficial. And um, I kind of view it like if you want to have purple hair, have purple hair. And if you, you know, whatever, whatever makes you feel like an absolute queen or king and makes you feel the most confident in going into, you know, your life and, and making impact. I mean, I'm like, sure, go for it. Exactly. If you have one life, live it. If you want to do Botox, do Botox. If you don't, don't. (laughs) Yeah. What is, okay. So working in aesthetics, it's always like, what is your skincare regimen? How do you take care of your skin? So, okay. So I, um, I've been doing Botox forever. Um, I mean like forever, like since sometime in my twenties. Um, and I've been doing filler in my face. Like I get my cheeks and my lips injected. I've been doing that forever also, maybe a couple years at this point. Um, but skincare wise, I, we have the Elastin line of products here in the office. So I use those. They're gentle, but effective, you know, like it's the perfect blend of being a medical grade skincare line, but also being like, easy to use, affordable. I don't feel over irritated ever. So like I'll use their gentle cleanser. I use their eye cream. It's super amazing. Tightens the eyelid, which like I've got my dad's eyes like treacherous and it helps them look normal, you know, with a little Botox too. Um, and I just use their serums, their, their light moisturizer. And then I'm a huge makeup junkie. You know, my makeup is done every single day, even if I feel like complete trash, um, my makeup is done. So I love the Elastin skincare line. I will do some micro needling a couple times through the year. Um, and then about once a year, maybe once every two years, I'll do an IPL laser just to help with some brown spots, melasma since I was pregnant, um, that kind of stuff. But I mean, that's, I was about to say nothing too invasive, but that's pretty invasive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did, um, I did PRP microneedling um, when I was getting ready for Mrs. America this last year. And that was my yeah. first experience doing that. And then I tried radio frequency microneedling uh-huh. and I, I feel like I'm a pretty tough person. Yeah. I mean, I had two of my kids completely naturally and, um, the hot needles to the face yeah. is 
another Wait, level you? another level of torture well they did they put topical lidocaine on okay. i feel like i'm one of those people that's kind of resistant to topical lidocaine yeah. and then i also feel like parts of your face obviously like your oh. cheeks are a lot softer i was like okay you could do my cheeks all day but yeah. dang like parts of like yeah, forehead or, when they would get close to my hairline or my chin or you know obviously places that are more sensitive like your uh, you know upper lip area holy yeah. smokes but i will say <laughs> that I think the recovery was night and day faster with the radiofrequency microneedling compared to the PRP. Is that your yeah. experience too? I think so. I think so. And I mean, it also kind of depends on like what time of the month you're getting these treatments done. Like being on your period affects this, hormones affects this, like what products you're using. I really love the elastin nectar for pre and post microneedling because it makes your recovery so much faster. Like you still get the benefit. Like you're still going to get red, you're still going to bleed. You're still going to do that little light peel. Um, but you don't look as crazy as you can go out and function sooner. So, you know, little things like yeah. that. Can you tell people like, like, what are the need, like, what are the needles actually doing? Like, how are they making? Yeah. So like every device that we use is different. Like, obviously you spoke about the radio frequency microneedling. That one's probably, it was probably the Morpheus. Um, I have the skin pen, like they're all different, but essentially it's a bunch of little needles that are sterilely introduced into your face to cause micro traumas. And that micro trauma makes your body form like a scar reaction. So it lays down new collagen, it helps resurface the top layer of skin. It helps, you know, just overall rejuvenate, it helps with fine lines, it helps with the dark spots because it brings them to the surface more. Um, and it helps with pore size. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much great for everybody unless you've got really dark skin tone and you're worried about hyperpigmenting then it's like, I recommend it to young people. I recommend it to old people. Like it's really just great for everybody. Tell people what is the difference between coming in and getting like a medical grade skin pen versus we're seeing a lot more like at home, like little roller yeah. needle devices. Yeah. The, you want to do some, I mean, like let's, it's, it's your face. Like you really shouldn't skimp on your face. Like, I mean, trust me, I've been victim to it too. When I was in residency and had no money, I was like the girl going to the group on places, but at the end of the day, you want to go to some place that's giving you something that's sterile, that's FDA approved, you know, that's really, you know, medical grade, because for example, the ones that we have at home, that is not sterile. You're just introducing bacteria into your face. The other thing with the needles and the pens that we use is every single cartridge is new. So that's an entirely new set of needles that are sharp, that are the perfect angle, that don't have jagged edges, that are going to go strategically exactly where we want them to at the depth that we want them to. And if you're buying stuff cheap, if you're buying stuff off Amazon, like you really can't guarantee any of that stuff. And you're more likely to have a complication. Like I knew a girl who got microneedling done and ended up with the fungal infection on her face. Like, do you want that? No, just, just pay a hundred dollars more and get a good, good treatment. Well, but even you know, certified professionals, we're seeing so many of these, you know, things pop up, these little, you know, med spas and half the yeah. time there's some, you have you know, to inquire. I think it's important to inquire, like, you know, um, is this sterile? Like, is there any risk of contamination? Like, you know, I don't think not everything's FDA approved. So it's hard to ask that specifically, but, um, you know, just, just asking questions. And I think you'll get a really a good feel for the place that you're at. If they're, shady or if they're very open and willing to communicate with you what kind of products they have.
Yeah, yeah. Back to your um, bariatric patients, how, you know, when patients experience a massive weight loss like that, how many of them typically will go on to do like skin removal surgeries? I know that's, you know, a lot, a lot. And I'm actually getting into that aspect of the surgery as well. So I've started doing some body contouring and started doing some liposuction skin removal. And I mean, you know, it's a big weight loss and it's such a wonderful thing. You know, it's such a transformation And if you still, if you do this and then you see a lot of excess skin, not everybody has it. Some people, you know, snap back pretty well. Um, But if you're one of the people that has a lot of excess skin, it's like, you almost owe it to yourself. Like you deserve to have the new body to go with the new weight, to go with the new healthy lifestyle. So a lot of people, I would say probably like somewhere between 50 and 60% of people will do some type of plastic surgery after the procedure. The most common is going to be the tummy tuck. Um, majority of bariatric patients are women. So breast, you know, lift and augmentation is next after that. And then arms and thighs, you know, just kind of wrapping the whole package up. Um, but it really looks amazing. Like I I've seen so many after results and you would never even know that these people were hundred, 150 pounds heavier, like a year ago. Yeah. Talk to me about like some of the body contouring devices. It's not a field that I work in, but I've heard I know recently in the media with this, um, um, we can't even think of the device, the cryo for fat loss. There was a famous celebrity that had a bad adverse reaction to it. That's the cool sculpt. And that, to be honest, I don't really, I don't want to say like that that's a common um, complication or issue because I've seen so many people have a good result from it. So it's hard to say. I think it's rare that's um, the PAH or the proximal, um, basically adipose hypertrophy. So it's like where you go to get cool sculpting, but then you actually get gross. back there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's extremely rare. If you're a candidate for cool sculpting and you think that it's something that you want to do, I think you should, could, should still consider it. There's that. There's the M sculpt, which is really more of a electric, you know, current device to, um, stimulate your muscles. And that's more for toning. Um, those are like the two biggest names of like lasers and devices and things that are out there for fat loss. Um, and then it's just like the, you know, the bread and butter, it's like liposuction, it's removing the skin, you know, like really sticking to the basics. There's no, you know, there's no device that's going to replace surgery. I think like you and I both know that at the end of the day, some people just need certain procedures and other people don't. Well, and so, I mean, the results are modest. Like none of these things are miracle workers. Like you always want to be optimizing nutrition, optimizing, you know, resistance training and movement and those types of things. And that was one thing when we were talking about, um, uh, skin and microneedling is, uh, if you look at my face over the last five years, I, I can tell a major difference after doing the PRP and microneedling, but my nutrition also changed massively in the last mm-hmm. five years. And, yeah. you know, your skin, your collagen synthesis is so much tied to, you know, your nutrition. I mean, you can literally just see the glow in people's faces when they start giving their body the nutrients that it needs. For sure. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So I end all my podcasts with something called the semen analysis. And I want to talk a little bit about the new hot weight loss drug, semi-glutide. Um, I, I pulled this study. So for those of you that haven't heard, 
you know, we have been trying for years and years and years to find some sort of magic medicine <laughs> that will just make us lose the fat, right? It would be really easy if we could just take a pill or or something along those lines. And, and things have had very modest effects. Obviously, it always has to coincide with appropriate, uh, you know, diet and exercise and, the, and those types of things. And, and the same goes for this kind of family of medications, but semi-glutide really made a lot of headlines. Um, in the original trial, it was a double-blinded trial with 1,961 adults of BMI greater than 30 or BMI greater than 27 with a coexisting condition, so like hypertension, diabetes. So you can, Dr. Kickler had kind of mentioned the BMI cutoffs for surgery. Obviously, these are a lot lower for people that would qualify for some sort of medical therapy like this. Um, they assigned these people for 68 weeks of treatment. So the semi-glutide is a once-weekly subcutaneous injection, plus, of course, they encouraged lifestyle intervention. Their endpoints were looking at the percentage of their body weight or weight reduction of at least 5% is what they considered to be clinically significant. And the mean change in body weight from baseline to week 68 was 14.9% loss in the semi-glutide group compared with only 2.4% with the placebo. So that's an estimated treatment difference of 12.4%. Um, the participants that received the medication had a greater improvement with respect to their cardiometabolic risk factors, a greater increase um, in um, reported physical functioning. So they physically were, were performing better from baseline compared to placebo. Of course, everything comes with side effects and nausea and diarrhea were the most common adverse events in the trial, but they were typically transient um, and subsided with time. Um, are you doing medical weight loss of this type or have you had any experience with this new new drug? Yeah, so, so I'm also board certified in obesity medicine. Um, and I do kind of, I did recently kind of open up a medical weight loss aspect of both North Palm Beach aesthetics, but also at the hospital. And I do this, you know, I prescribe these medications, you know, I have do, been doing GLP-1 agonist, which is what this class of medication is. Um, probably for maybe two years now. Um, but I do all the others as well, the fentramentopyramate, all the different, you know, classes. I find that it works in some, not as much in others. You know, I find some people have terrible side effects and can't take it. Some people don't notice anything, you know, so I think it's really patient dependent and very variable. Um, you know, right off the bat, a lot of people don't want to give themselves a shot. So that was the initial kind of limiting factor because the ones that we had previously were like daily injections, the ones that were indicated for obesity. Now we've got some that are indicated for obesity that are only once a week. So that's more promising and more people are likely to do that. Um, but yeah, the side effects are there, you know, the nausea is there. Um, I just, I don't know, some people I find do better with the medication that they feel that they're taking, you know, whether that be a phenamine or a Vyvanse or something combined with something else, it just works differently. And maybe it's psychiatric, but, um, yeah. yeah. And, um, so this class of medications that Dr. Kickler and I are talking about this one in particular actually increases insulin secretion, which for most of the people that my followers that live in the low carb space, it's like, okay, wait, <laughs> I thought that was a bad hormone. Um, yeah. And so, but most of them really work through appetite suppression is really how most of these, these work with helping you control your intake. And, and that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is controlling what you put inside your body, managing your output and your output of energy. And that's, that's the best thing we have for long-term weight management. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But these are all, these are all great tools that, uh, that, They're uh, definitely awesome. presentations. And you know, yeah. Like if you, if you are overweight or if you have obesity, like 
it's better to take something than to just ignore it. So, you know, people, I literally had a patient today say like, she's on one of the medications that I prescribed. And she's like, I feel like I'm cheating. I'm like, why you're helping your health. Like you're getting healthier, you're getting fitter, you're, you know, happier with yourself. Like who cares if you take a pill once a day, like, and you may need to take it for a long time. That's the other thing. It's like, obesity is a disease, just like hypertension, just like diabetes. When your doctor puts you on a medication for high blood pressure, do they stop it once your blood pressure is normal? No, like you stay on it for a certain amount of time. Maybe if you lose weight and your, your habits are much healthier then you can eventually come off of it, but it's not like a month to month thing. Like it's usually a more chronic thing. You know, you may have to be on these medications for some time. Don't consider that, you know, defeat, consider that just chronic care, which everybody needs. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Kickler, thank you for your time today. Tell people how they can find you at both your practices and uh, where you're located, how they can find you on social media to connect. So social media, the easiest is Instagram. I'm slimming surgeon. So S-L-I-M-M-I-N-G surgeon. Um, my North Palm Beach aesthetics practice, it also has an Instagram, which is linked on my slimming surgeon page. So that's probably the easiest way to get to it. And then uh, through the hospital, you can find me at JFK Medical Center in Atlantis. Um, there's a number, it's 548-BARY, uh, 561 is the area code, but um, really social media is the easiest way. Send me a DM, I read them all. Um, I love to talk to people, love to write back. So I'd be happy to talk to anybody with questions. Amazing. Well, thank you for your time. And when I come down there, I'm going to come check out North Palm Beach. <laughs> Definitely. Come see me, girl. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really loved it. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Make sure you download this episode and share it with anybody who might find it useful. Everybody have a great day.